we are adults when we go to work. We have mortgages and children and other things. We are all capable of handling quite complex situations. Somehow, sometimes when we go to work, we think that we need to do things for people. Actually, they're grown-ups. Set the expectation with them that they also need to find ways to work together. And that's something that you expect them to do, right? It is a job requirement to get on with your peers. Uh, setting the expectation does not mean you can't help, but want to be clear that it is not my responsibility as the leader to figure out how you should find a way to work together. It is actually your responsibility to do that. Welcome to the Unlocking Your People podcast. We believe that successful businesses run on people and relationships. The better your people perform, the better your business will perform. This show is dedicated to business owners and team builders that are looking to get the best out of their people and workforce. Each episode will be a strategy, a message, and even tips and tricks to help you create and cultivate a passionate workforce for your organization. Your host has spent her career helping companies and leaders handle the tough people stuff at work and helping people work better together so they can increase their impact and their results. CEO of E3 Consulting, Jess Chapman. Hello, everyone. This episode is going to be another of our Q&A style episodes. I'm joined again by the fabulous Kendra Lane, who is going to operate as host for this particular episode. And Kendra is going to be asking me questions that either have come into her in the last few weeks from people that she works with or has come into us on our various social media channels. So we're going to be dealing with real life questions that people have posed us and sharing our thoughts and hints and tips on those particular questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Unlocking Your People. I am thrilled today to be joined again by the fabulous Kendra Lane, who is taking on the role again of uh, question master and partial host for this episode. So Kendra is somebody who shares my passion for the world of people and psychology and why we do the things that we do. Um, And that's carried through her career in a number of different ways and a number of different roles. And she has agreed to be the person to pepper me with questions today uh, and ask me the things that we have had come in from clients and and our online audiences and ask me to answer some of those questions. So thank you very much for agreeing to be here again, Kendra. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jess. I'm happy to be here. Marvelous. So without further ado, um, format of the show is really simple. Kendra's going to ask me the questions that we've had come in. Uh, Some of them I've seen beforehand, some of them I haven't. So um, you might hear me respond in, in that regard, and um, I will talk about what, what's come on in from the people in the real world. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jess. So the first question we have um, is, what is the balance between building on a person's strength and helping them develop their weaknesses? So how do you decide where to focus on areas of growth? And I think um, you know, a bit of color here is, um, you know, the, the person asking the question is looking at how, how much time do we spend on building somebody's strengths up so that they can perform in excellence? And then how much time do we spend sort of bringing their weaknesses up to, um, uh, to a, a level that helps them perform in their job? And so where, where should we be focusing our areas of growth, perhaps both? Um, and what does that look like from your perspective, Jess? So really good question. So in recent years, the the notion of strengths-based leadership, so, so kind of a predominant focus on somebody's strengths, has become more prevalent. And there is certainly a 
a common sense aspect to it, if you think about it. So, you know, if I'm really good at doing something, so let's say I'm really good at um, strategy work, I'm very good at thinking big picture and coming up with ideas, but I'm not as good at planning out the minutiae and the detail of that work. Um, you could spend as much time and energy and effort moving my weakness from like a two out of 10 to a three out of 10 as you know, if you took that energy and effort to move the dial one notch for my weakness, if you applied that to my strength, maybe you could get me from a six out of 10 to a 10 out of 10. So there's definitely some benefit to considering, you know, how much energy are you pumping into trying to get somebody better at something that they find difficult? And how much more benefit would you get if you put that energy into getting them to really hone something they're very good at? So there's definitely a, a premise there that's that's worth considering. There's two caveats, though, from my perspective. Um, the first is around fit. So uh, we kind of joked about this a little bit earlier. If you know, if I've applied to be a counsellor and my development area is empathy, you can't very well tell me not to work on that skill because that skill is pretty core to my success in the job. So not focusing on a weakness only works if it's not going to prevent me from being successful in the position that I'm in. Otherwise, we still need to get that development area or that weakness to a point where we can perform sufficiently well in the role. And so if you have somebody who's got multiple weaknesses that aren't where they need them to be, actually, you've probably got a bigger question of fit for the job than you have necessarily got, uh, should I focus on their strengths versus their weaknesses, unless they're kind of brand spanking new to the world of work, which is a bit different. And the other caveat for me is uh, around growth. So at certain points in our career path, we may not have date to date looked at developing a skill because it wasn't important up until now. So let's say you're sitting in a technical role and you're considering leadership. You haven't thought about skills like coaching or mentoring or you know planning other people's work because it wasn't critically important to you. And so it will be a weakness and it will be a development area. That doesn't necessarily mean you couldn't move up into something bigger, but you do need to understand that in order to take on something bigger, you would have to close the gap on those particular areas because they are fundamentally important to that job. So I really like the premise of, of strengths-based leadership. And I think it, it has a lot of benefit in terms of validating people, appreciating what they're good at, celebrating diversity, building effective teams, all the things that we want from a kind of um, everybody coming together perspective, but only if it's not causing detrimental impact to that person's current job or their future career growth. Yeah, that makes um, makes a lot of sense. Jess, uh, the example you used earlier in terms of, okay, well, let's say we bring someone's you know weakness from a two to a three versus their strength from a six to a 10. I guess we'd be looking at the specific role to determine, you know, in the end, what's the better profile for this role, right? Would we rather have somebody who is a three and a six, or would we rather have somebody who's a two and a 10 um, based on, you know, what that profile is, what those skill sets are and how that relates to the role and, and, and what their expectations are for performance. Yes. And, you know, to, to use a, Britishism, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? So there's not one way to perform a role. And in fact, um, I've been doing a piece of work with a client on fit for a position and they have a number of candidates in mind and the candidates will do the role differently. And I can't say that they will be any better 
or any worse than each other, but their approach to the role, um, one of them will do it one way, one of them will do it another. So the question becomes what's most beneficial and important to the organization in the way that that person who takes on that role is it's not actually the person is a better or worse fit. It's about the context of the organization at that point in time. So, you know, I often end up having conversations with people where they're going, you know, so-and-so is in a job and they're not performing. And it turns out they kind of knew that was going to happen before they put them in the job, right? We, you know, sometimes work on the assumption that, you know, I use the ubiquitous Bob often in training programs. So random Bob, we know Bob doesn't plan. Bob's never had a job that's required planning, but all of a sudden we decide that job Bob is the right person to take on a project management position and suddenly expect that Bob's going to plan. Well, Bob's never planned, so why do we think that that's going to magically change when we just tell him he's in a project management role? Even if we tell him he has to plan, if it's not something he's ever done, had experience of, or shows a preference for, he's still probably not going to do it. So there are there are different levels of fit for positions. If you're going to appoint somebody to a job or promote somebody, do it consciously. If you know that they have a weakness in a particular aspect of that role, be conscious of that. That might still make them the best fit candidate for that position, but put them into the job consciously, recognizing the things that you need to wrap around them in order for them to be successful. If you want Bob to succeed in project management when he's not good at planning, well, either we need to train Bob pretty quickly and get him good at planning, or we need to put resources around him who are going to fill in that gap. But either way, if we don't, he's not going to be successful. And then we either lose Bob or we end up spending an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what we do with Bob because he's not succeeding in the role. So yes, fit fit is a really important question and it's rarely perfect. Um, so, you know, for me, it's a, it's about consciously looking at how we promote people and making sure that we set them up to be successful. And I guess that that question and, and, you know, the discussion we're having now is a bit from the management perspective. So, you know, my people or my team, how do I support them in doing that? But as a follow on from a, a coaching perspective and from individuals, um, I guess, where where is your head around um, individuals working on identifying and working on their own areas of growth and weaknesses and also building on their strengths? So you know, do you find that people tend to focus more on sort of, um, you know, building up their weaknesses to to compensate for areas that they have gaps? Um, or is it important for people as well to sort of identify, well, these are the things I'm really good at. Um, let me ensure I'm, I'm building up these skills so that I can continue to move forward and, and get better. I'm not sure that there is a blank, blanket answer. So there's a kind of premise of around 70-30 approach. So I think it's Gallup, but I could be wrong on that one. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, when you give feedback, when you talk to people, when you focus on coaching them, you focus 70% on strengths and 30% on development areas. Um, but, you know, back to the question of impact for me. So, you know, what's going to make the most impact for you in your engagement, performance, happiness in your job, and also for your organization. If it's going to be more impactful for you to pick two development areas to work on, go for it. If it's going to be more impactful for you to leverage your strengths further and none of your development areas are critically important for you to be successful in your job, great. So I don't know that there's a blanket measurement that I would ever apply. I think it's helpful to and certainly for certain personality types like myself who tend to focus more on things that they feel need to be fixed, it's a good reminder. The strengths-based approach is a really good reminder to make sure you're appreciating and validating people um, for the things that they do well. But I don't know that there's a formula. I think it comes down to 
understanding the context that the person finds themselves in and what's going to make most difference for them and the organization. And then you build a plan around that. Yeah. And I know in our future, uh, in our previous conversations, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about high pro and, and high po. So related to this question, um, how do we know, you know, if someone's in a role and they're performing well, um, you know, really well, how, how do we know uh, as leaders whether or not that person, you know, should should stay and sort of be a really high performer, be proficient in their role, or whether we should be looking at uh, moving them up to leadership positions and, and, and the different skill sets that are required? Yeah, I, I love this question. Um, so just to clarify for those who don't know, we use the def- definitions of high po and high pro to refer to people with high potential. So the idea that you have the ability to take on more and high pro being people who are high performing. Um, so really good in their current role and they're not mutually exclusive, but they do not necessarily always go hand in hand. And so that's the big piece for me. I mean, Leadership is a great example of this. So, you know, the number of times I've worked with organizations or clients who have had somebody who's technically exceptionally good at a job uh, in a frontline kind of technical capacity, and then they've gone, great, we will promote this person to being a people leader and they'll be very successful, only to have them move and realize that actually they have none of the skills, ability, or even desire in some cases to do that job uh, means we weren't looking at the right things. So, you know, the idea that somebody has become extremely successful in their current role is a good cue to consider whether they can take on more. But for me, the question is, what is that more? So is it they're, te- they're good in their current role because of their technical expertise? Is it that they're good because they have certain soft skills like planning and organizing, so non-people specific soft skills? Or is it that they're really good at people? Like what is it that makes them successful? Because that just because they're good at a certain position now does not mean that they have everything that they might need or have the ability to grow into what they might need to be successful. We wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't pluck me out of the world I do and suddenly drop me in and tell me I'm going to be an accountant and expect me to be successful. I don't have the the background skills or experience to do that. We would all recognize that, you know, in order for me to really work in that space, I'm going to need some help in the technical side of things. Maybe I can do it from a people perspective, but the actual running of the books, not so much. So why we assume that somebody can do that over and over again is, is a bit of an anathema to me. So that, that step of Yes, this person clearly has ability because they are demonstrating in that, that in their current role is a great cue to consider what that looks like. But then we have to ask, what are they good at and where does that allow them to be? And particularly when we think about moving up, so more doesn't always move mean moving upwards, more can mean lateral moves, projects, all that kind of stuff. But if you're looking for somebody to move up in an organization, then the reality is today, whether you have formal people leadership or not, you do need people skills. I mean, if you're going to take on a more senior role in an organization, we're getting into being able to telecommunication to audiences and managing agendas and influencing people and being able to present well and a whole bunch of things that are, whether you like it or not, people leadership skills. So, you know, that aspect at least is something that has to be considered. Now, you don't always have to have somebody 100% perfect for a job to move them into it either, but we're back to conscious, right? Conscious decision. If I'm promoting you into this position and you have 50% of the requisite skills to do the job, then I need a plan for how I'm closing the gap on the other 50%. Otherwise, I'm taking a punt on whether you're going to be successful and I'm really not doing a lot to set you up to be successful, which is not terribly fair on the person involved. Um, 
And the only other last thing I'd say is quite often we don't ask either. Do you actually want more? Because it's okay if you don't. Uh, if the world was predicated on everybody wanting to move up, we would have lots of problems in organizations because there's not enough up jobs for everybody. So, you know, there is a point in time where it's perfectly okay for someone to say, no, thank you. Quite often in organizations, though, we get confused by that answer and we think that everybody should want to move up into something else. Um, so, you know, it has to be a combination for me of desire and ability. So I guess if, if leaders were kind of asking you, you know, I do have this high performer and I, I think this is, you know, I'm considering moving them into leadership. Um, what I'm hearing is that your recommendation around first steps would be, you know, have that discussion with the person, um, you know, have, have a clear um, expectation about what the change in expectation is and what the skill set that is needed um, and kind of gauge that interest in where the um, interest in, in performing the role, but also in um, addressing that skills, that skills gap and taking on, on um, new, new skills that way as well. Yeah. And it can be tricky, right? Because if you approach somebody about another position or moving up in the organization and you're not clear about it, you can send implicit signals to that person that you think they're perfectly ready which might not be at all what you were intending, right? So if you go and say, hey, Kendra, have you seen this job? I think you should apply for it. In your head, you might be thinking, yeah, Kendra's a reasonable fit, but there might be a few other people out there too. We'll see who we can get. Kendra's thinking, oh, Jess came and solicited me for a position. She must think I'm a shoe in I must have everything I need to be successful in that job. I'm going to apply. Then one of two things happens. Either you don't get it and you wonder why the hell anybody asked you in the first place, or you do and you end up realizing that the expectation in that job is vastly different than what you thought it was going to be and you're perhaps not as ready as you thought you were. So, you know, we can do all kinds of things. We talk about intention all the way through this program, but, you know, we do things for the best of intentions, but the clarity of expectation when we move people into jobs, when we promote people, when we appoint people, for me is really key. We very rarely have conversations with successful candidates to say, congratulations, you were stellar in these five areas. But to be clear, number six wasn't where we thought it needed to be. And that's going to need some consideration. So let's talk about what we do with that. Quite often, we just say, congratulations, here's your onboarding package and your key to get in the door. Off you go. Yeah, great tips. And definitely... Um, important to think about as as people are looking to build um, small teams and and rapidly. Are you enjoying the show this far? We know the people stuff in your business can be tricky to nail down. Each scenario feels unique on its own. We go through so many resources and tools with the podcast. It's tough to keep up. We get it. So what if you had all the right tools and training to help your organization be successful every single day with your people and the culture you're building? Jess and her team have created a range of training programs that can help you with all the different challenges of unlocking your people. For the challenges of leadership, there are two core programs, Elevate for supervisors and Propel for more senior leaders. Both programs dig deeper into the concepts, frameworks, and skills that you've heard throughout this podcast series. From building trust and empathy, to having those tougher people conversations, to managing conflict, and so much more. To see which program makes more sense for you, please go to www.e3.ca slash training for the full breakdown. The best part? All the programs are fully virtual and modular, meaning you can do them anywhere, anytime, and fit them into your busy schedule. 
And if you're facing particular challenges in building your team, managing change, or managing performance, we have online toolkits that can solve your unique challenges today. Once again, www.e3.ca slash training. Now, back to the show. Okay, interesting question coming up now. Um, I have two leaders on my team who are like oil and water. I value both of their perspectives, but the communication and collaboration with one another is highly ineffective, and I'm always needing to intervene. What can I do? Great question. I I love questions about um, team and personality and stuff like that. So oil and water, without knowing a lot more about these people, oil and water on that comment suggests what you have is diversity, right? So you have two people on the team who have different views, different styles, maybe different personalities, different perspectives, but diversity of some form. Inherently brilliant because the more diverse we are, the more creative we get, the more solution built oriented we can be and so on. But diversity generally causes bumps if we don't have a lot of um, things in place. So where would I start? There's a few things I'd say to that. So the first thing I'd say is expectations, right? Do these people know that you expect them to figure out working together. Um, We are adults when we go to work. We have mortgages and children and other things. We are all capable of handling quite complex situations. Somehow, sometimes when we go to work, we think that we need to do things for people. Actually, they're grown-ups. Set the expectation with them that they also need to find ways to work together, and that's something that you expect them to do. Right? It is a job requirement to get on with your peers. Uh, setting the expectation does not mean you can't help, but want to be clear that it is not my responsibility as the leader to figure out how you should find a way to work together. It is actually your responsibility to do that. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is about appreciation. So quite often, because of similarity bias, right, we are wired to believe that because I am a good person, my brain says I'm good. Anybody like me that is also good. So anybody who's not like me, eh, don't know about you. So, you know, quite often when we meet people who are different to us in whatever capacity, there is a level of not sure what to do with you that goes on in our thinking and our processing. And so spending some time with those individuals on appreciating differences and diversity Uh, making sure the strengths of the other person are clear to that person, getting them to think about the world from that person's perspective, put themselves into somebody else's shoes for a while. All of those things can help to alleviate some of the misunderstandings that go on between different personality types and and different approaches. Um, And it's interesting because we actually, in one of the leadership programs that we run, we do a case study question as one of the assignments. And it's a situation where Amelia, who's a made up person, is finding it difficult to deal with Dave, who's her coworker. And she comes in and she has a big rant about Dave. And the question is, what would you do? And so for me, the 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 deciding factor here is how much you want to get in the middle of this, right? So we can quite often as leaders end up, as this person is articulating, being the mediator all the time. And so all of a sudden we get sucked into all of these conversations and, you know, Amelia's coming and saying, I can't work with Dave. And Dave's coming and saying, I can't work with Amelia. And we're constantly having to sit down and figure it out. There's nothing to stop you from coaching them on dealing with it themselves. All right. So mediation is a route, coaching is a route, and figuring out how to separate them out and put them on different things is a route. Um, my preference is to try and 
help them understand and recognize the value of each other and figure out their strategies to work together. Because if they can learn to do it with each other, they can learn to do it with any other person they come across in their career, right? So, you know, there's some temptation and often I see in the assignment, one of the answers, one of the options is to move Amelia into somebody else's team. And quite often individuals say, that's what they would do, right? I'm going to move Amelia. The only thing Amelia learns from that is that if she comes and tells you she has a problem, she gets to avoid the problem, right? So we're rewarding the wrong behavior. So, you know, rather than mediating all the time, that setting the expectation, helping them to understand and start to value and appreciate each other, and then coaching them on approaching each other differently will build their ability to connect with each other over time, right? So that those things really matter. That only works if there's benefits and consequences. So we are wired for threat and reward. If I can keep coming to you and you keep stepping in and making it better, guess what? I will keep coming to you and you will keep stepping in and making it better because you're taking my pain away. And so you have to put the responsibility back where it belongs and you have to make it their responsibility to make it better, not take the pain away for them. And then when they do it, when they talk to each other, when they find a win, when they get over the hump when they get past whatever issue they're having, you clap and cheer and say, well done and validate and appreciate their actions as strongly as you can um, so that you reward that behavior and they keep working on those things together. So it's not, you know, it's not a quick hit, click your fingers and it's done. But if you're intentional about it and put some structure around it, you can get oil and water to a place where they are actually probably your tightest pair. And if you can get them past the misunderstanding of each other's diversity and they have an appreciation for each other, you'd be amazed what role modeling they'll do for the members of the team around how to get on with people who are not like you. And I think in, you know, in some of my uh, experience in the past, a way to kind of remove the personal aspect of it. So it's not, you know, me versus you or my preferences versus your preferences, but bringing in, you know, those personality assessments or profiles um, kind of helps remove, remove that personal bias and make it more about the preferences as they exist for, you know, people. So let's use DISC as an example that I know you work with, um, but sometimes kind of uh, panning out a little bit and saying, well, you know, um, Typically, this might be a way that somebody who is a DI and an SC um, might find a way to work together, or here's typically how you might find this challenging. And so it kind of removes the um, the threat, if you will, of this person versus this person. It's more like, no, actually, this is, you know, quite understandable why these different perspectives um, might not understand each other right away. And, and here's some suggestions on uh, from the tool and, and from a coaching perspective on, on how you can find alignment. Um, so would you recommend kind of uh, incorporating those where those resources are available and, and removing the personal aspect to, to talk more about preferences? I certainly think it helps. Um, so, you know, anytime you tie things back to wiring or habit, right? We take it out of the personal realm. So what happens to us naturally as people is we assume ill intent. Oh, Kendra's Kendra's interrupting me again. She's doing it on purpose. It's something about me. She doesn't like me, as opposed to actually you're just overly enthusiastic or I've had an efficiency driver and I talk a lot or something that's more, you know, less to do with me and more to do with your own preferences and your own wiring. So, you know, I do find the language around 
talking about preferences quite helpful for people um we i'm always mindful when we do use a tool like a disc or any of the other assessments that we use to make sure people don't use it as an excuse or a label right so you don't get to say oh well i'm a d so you know suck it up buttercup that's how i am no no this is about making sure we understand where you'll default back to what's in your comfort zone of behaviors and what's stretch zone for you and why you might do things differently when you're not thinking about it but we don't get to kind of excuse our impact for that reason um but anything that's going to basically help people see the positive side of somebody else and remove the personal lens, because it's rarely ever personal, um, even when it's personality, it's really personal, um, is helpful. So there's a style of leadership called affiliative leadership. And affiliative leadership is about being um, much more connected to your people. So not talking about performance and coaching or visionary strategic things, but who are you and what are you about as an individual? And even if you can't do, you know, an assessment with somebody, because that's not a tool you have or access to, or you don't have budget for, if as a leader, you are openly appreciative of the strengths of each member of your team, if you openly recognize and talk about the values that each member of your team brings to the table in front of other members of the team, then you're starting to promote that awareness. You know, Sue has an amazing sense of humor. Bob is good at keeping us on time. Fred is somebody that I can always count on to be here and put in maximum effort. We all know that Bob, Sue and Fred have gaps and development areas, but what you're asking the team to pay more attention to is the great things they pay, they come to the table with. So whether you use a disc to do that or whether you're, you're using your experience of working with people, getting them to think past the bump and think about the strengths and the values of somebody is an important place to start. And any conflict between people comes back to common ground. What common ground can you find between them or create between them? What common experience can they have? Send them on a training program together, you know, get them to do a project together. You know, they'll bump along the way for sure, but they're going to have a common experience or some piece of common ground. And the more common ground we have, the more we have in common with people, the more our similarity bias works in our favor and you become a trusted friend and not somebody that I'm not sure of and I don't know where to put you in the mix. That's great advice. And I, you know, I think adding on your suggestion that leaders, you know, typically try not to take the reins and, and you know, definitely make expectations clear that it, it, you know, it's your responsibility as a team member to find a, find, you know, a way to get along with your other team members. Um, you know, if you're, if leaders are asking you what, what can they do, what's the best thing for them to say to, um, you know, oil and water um, to help coach them through that, what would you say would be a good starting point? So depends if you're going to, if one of them's come to you and said, oh, I'm exasperated about Dave, what do I do? Or if you've decided to go down the more kind of mediate route in the middle. If you're coaching them on one of them on talking to the other, I would focus on t- kind of two main things. So helping them envisage and be really clear on the relationship they would like to have with that person. Ima- get them to imagine and paint a picture of what it sh- what it, for them it should be like, what would make a difference, and that they can clearly articulate those behaviours or you know how they would work with that person in that way. Because quite often the other person has no idea that what they're doing is irritating somebody or what what to do differently. So they need to be very clear about that, um, and then encouraging them to to be very clear on how they intend to approach that conversation. If they are oil and water. Water can't talk to the other person the way that would work for them, right? So back to platinum rule, 
if you try and explain it to somebody the way it makes sense to you, it's probably not going to land. So help that person figure out how to frame up their feedback and their ask in a way that's going to make sense for the other person. And, you know, if we're talking coaching, I will always come back to the grow model. It's a really good short framework for asking great questions that help get you to a proper outcome. So, you know, have a look at that one and coach to the grow model with that individual. If you're going to sit down with them together, then I think it's making sure that you find the right place to be in terms of facilitate versus tell. So the temptation with all of these things is to tell them what you'd like them to do and to tell them how to get on with each other. But telling rarely works for people's brains, right? We're not, we're much more receptive to the stuff that we come to of our own. So playing more of the facilitative role, asking each of them to share, you know, creating space. So, you know, if it was me, Amelia would share first. Dave needs to listen right? And you might need to help Dave listen because he's going to be listening to respond, not listening to understand. So, you know, and then Dave gets his chance to share and you're finding that common ground. What do they agree on? What do you hear that they agree on? Where do their strengths align? Where are their strengths complementary but different, right? So helping them paint that picture um, and playing back what you hear them say as opposed to you trying to tell them where they fit best because, you know, you telling them means they'll nod at you because you're the boss, but it's probably not going to solve anything. They need to come to that revelation for themselves. Yeah. And I guess you want to um, set up the conversation so that it's successful when you remove yourself, not that you're needed to be there in order for it to be successful. Yeah. And I tell them that. I mean, we talk a lot about taking the monkey, right? So the idea that leaders absorb people's problems, that like their problems are monkeys. And so inadvertently as a leader, you often take people's monkey your job isn't to take the monkey. Your job is to teach your team to tame their own monkeys so that you don't have to tame them and they are much more capable of taming them and then everybody wins. So any time you're approached by an employee with an issue, or certainly when any time I'm approached by an employee with an issue, my first thought is, how can I equip you to deal with this monkey so that next time you deal with the monkey and I don't have to, right? And then, then the team's capability and capacity level grows and my ability to do the things I want to do and not get mired in the weeds increases. So, and it takes time and, you know, I'll talk about it probably a bit later in the series, but you know, it doesn't take a lot of reflection, but we do need to be intentional about leadership with people and at least sometimes pause and go, how am I doing with everybody and where are they and am I giving them what they need and what should I focus on with this person for this month to help them turn the dial up on something that they want to move the dial on or I need them to move the dial on. So even just having that kind of radar around things can help you be a bit more specific about areas that people need you to be more specific on and then you take less monkeys. That's great. And I think that um, what happens a lot of times is that people get so busy and they're kind of running and going so fast or not taking those those moments to stop and pause and, and think about, you know, the people and, and what's going on and how we can, um, you know, work proactively with people to get ahead of monkeys that are going to become problems in the future um, and equip people to tame them when they're small problems and not big problems. Yes. So I think that, yes. that ties in time. Right? Deal with it now. When you spot it, go and have the nicer conversation. The nicer framework is one we use for, you know, there's accountability conversations. Go, go have the conversation and raise it when it's small before it comes big. And you know full well, if you don't, it will. And then when you have to deal with the pain of it later, you have no one to blame but yourself. We all do it, right? <laughs> but don't catch it, notice it, go ask about it, put a pin in it, you know, stitch it up with people so that it doesn't become a bigger problem that you have to deal with later. Very important. Um, 
that's actually a really good segue to the final question we have, which is from a leader who is wondering how to get their team to share more with them. Um, so he says specifically, I have an employee who um, unexpectedly, you know, um, went off on leave and is experiencing burnout. Uh, we had regular conversations and I really had no idea. Um, how can I be sure that my team is talking to me about these things? And what can I do to to have a better um, radar on how my team is doing? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, especially right now. Um, there's lots going on with the pandemic and everything else. Um, and a lot of people remote. So that does make sometimes make the connection point a little more tricky. Um, before I get into things you can do, I'll say two things. So one is you can't make people tell you anything. Um, now, that's not to excuse not doing good things as a leader, but there will be times when people choose to not share. It's private. They don't want to. They think they can handle it and a whole bunch of other reasons. So, you know, try not to beat yourself up too much if you're generally heading in the right direction. And most people come talk to you. If there's a handful of people who don't or a person that doesn't, I wouldn't worry. Back to patterns, we worry about patterns, right? So, you know, you can't make everybody tell you things. Um, but I guess there's two big things I'd say in actually three, I think I'd probably say in that regard. So the first is trust. Um, and we could spend a long time talking about trust, but if I'm going to share something with you of the magnitude that we're talking about, I mean, something significant enough that I need to go out, go off because I have a personal issue or I have burnout, we're talking about something significant. So if I'm going to share something of that magnitude with you, I need to have a trusting relationship with you. Um, so, you know, think about that who don't you have that relationship with, whether that's because they're new or because you're different from them or you just haven't managed to cement it. What can you do to increase the trust level in that relationship? And we use a model called GAIN to measure trust within a relationship so you can figure out where to focus with somebody. So so trust becomes a really important factor. Um, the other thing that I'd say is around clarifying for people consequences. So sometimes people don't share because they're worried about the implications of sharing. If I tell you that I have a personal issue and I'm going to need time off, does that mean I'll lose my job type of thinking, right? Or will you score me lower on my performance review? Or will you just generally stop thinking of me the same way? And, you know, some people are, you know, wired not like being vulnerable and a bunch of other things. So, you know, I'm trying to make a point when people join the team of talking about the fact that we are people and you bring your whole self to work and I want you to bring your whole self to work, which means you're going to have good days and bad days and things you do well and things you get wrong and stuff going on at home and everything else. And I'm not a counselor or a therapist, but I am here to support you as a person. And therefore it's fine to talk to me about what's going on with you and your life to the extent that you feel comfortable doing so. Right. So prov providing some clarity on what's okay in our world, I think is also important. And the last thing I'd say is around space. So, you know, some of these things are big, right? You know, if you're having a one-to-one -one with someone and you're running down the to-do list and you're expecting them to cough up in the middle of that conversation and say something like, yeah, I've got to tell you I'm suffering with anxiety, it's not going to happen, right? That's not going to, that type of admission, that type of reach out and connection does not happen in the run of a day conversation. So if you suspect something, right, people are patterns, so we notice we're paying attention to when somebody's off pattern. Um, if you suspect something, you should definitely check in. But anyway, in your regular one-to-ones with somebody, when do you create space? When is it their space for 
them to share what's on their mind, right? Not peppering them with questions, not how, not, are you on track, right? That's not a space question. That's a, are you doing the things I want you to do question? But the genuine, how's life? How is life according to Kendra? Talk to me about what's going on with you right now. Where, where are we at, right? And allowing them to answer and not feeling like you have to control or shape the, the flow or direction of that conversation or that there needs to be any kind of outcome. And for some of us who are more post-driven and I'm one of those people, that's very difficult to do. And sometimes I will sit on my hands and pinch my legs and various other things so that I make sure I give the more, you know, contemplative people in my team the space that they need to properly share. Um, but you do, you need to create proper space. It takes courage to tell those some of those things to people. It takes time to work up to it. It takes space to bring yourself to say those things. And if you're perpetually chiming in or driving in the conversation, that space may never be there for somebody. So, you know, know your people. We talk about that a lot through this series know your people and know what space looks like for them so you can do your best to meet it. You can't make them tell you, but if the environment is right and they trust you, you've got a much better chance that they'll actually get there. And I think in in my experience as well, Jess, I think creating that space is important. And then um, not just one off though, I think creating that space in a predictable manner so people know that it is there and it will be there in the future because um, you know, in my experience, I've had people who have sort of gone through this trajectory of like, oh, it's a small thing. I don't want to bother. It's a small thing. It's a small thing. I'm not going to bother it. Now it's become a big thing. And now it's too big to talk about. And so there's there's always they're compartmentalizing things and, and sort of labeling them as appropriate or inappropriate based on yes. the time and space that is available. And so I think if, you know, particularly in this person's question where they want to figure out how to create more space and and ensure that they're catching things that people are, you know, want to share or are open in sharing, then I think creating space is important. And also people knowing that that space is there and will continue to be there because I think sometimes they need to see it, feel it, and then kind of get up the courage to yes. use it in a way that is going to be helpful for them. Yeah, love that. The, the consistency is absolutely key because I have to believe it's real. If you do it once in a blue moon, is it really real? Do you really mean it? You know, if you consistently demonstrate I have space and time with you and you're caring, then I'm much more inclined to find that moment to say, actually, you know, life according to Jess isn't that great right now and here's why, right? So I think that's a really valid, really valid point. And for the the people who are vulnerable, it also allows them to sort of build up that that capacity of no, actually, I'm fine. And so in their mind, they've got six fines, which gives them an okay to say they're not okay. Yeah. Whereas if if you don't have the space to say whether you're fine or not, people who are less likely to share or be vulnerable won't take that one opportunity to say that they're not fine. Yeah. They need to build up capacity, if it will, that I was fine for six months and now I'm not. That is different. Yeah, that's, that's a really nice way of looking at it, percentage play, right? I've got 80%, I've been able to say I'm, I'm fine 80% of the time, so it's okay for me to take the 20%. That's a really yeah. neat way of looking at it. Yeah, really great. So I'm conscious of time. I think that uh, we're going to have to call it a day there, otherwise people will be uh, 
saying, you said to us at the very beginning of this in your origin episode, Jess, you said you would be very mindful of time and getting maximum value out of things. So I'm going to I'm gonna call an end to it there. Thank you again, Kendra, for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to be Question Master and to share your insights too, because like I said, you share my passion for the world of people. And I think you have lots of great nuggets to share with the, the group too. So thank you for that. Thanks, Jess. I really enjoyed it as well. So that's a wrap for this episode. If you are interested in any of the things that we have talked about in this particular part of the show, uh, you can check out our website or have a look at some of the programs that we offer and see uh, if any of them shed a little more light for you or indeed just reach out to us at contact at e3.ca and share some of your questions with us and maybe we'll put them into a future podcast. So happy listening, everybody. Take care. Hope you enjoyed that episode today on the Unlocking Your People podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this on. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this episode with them. This show exists to showcase what is possible when leaders have the right strategies and frameworks to tackle the tough people stuff within their business and organizations. To learn more about how Jess and her team can potentially help your organization unlock the potential in its people, take a look at the options at www.e3.ca. The better your people perform, the better your business will perform. Once again, it's www.e3.ca. All right, that's a wrap. We can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode. Oh, 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 oh,